following audio is from Crossroads Church in West Ossipee, New Hampshire. For more information about Crossroads Church, you can go to www.crossroadsossipee.com. Morning, family. So good to see you all here today. As you probably know, uh, since Heath isn't here, um, he's taking a well-deserved break this Sunday. And uh, that gives me another opportunity to share the word with you guys today. <clears throat> After my last sermon um, a couple months ago, I began thinking of some of the things that I might want to preach on in the future. And uh, one of the things that was on my heart was the idea of um, unity as a church. So I've titled today's message as Unity for the Sake of the Gospel. Our scripture this morning is found in Philippians chapter 1 verses 27 through 30, which we will examine first, and then we will continue with chapters 2, 1 through 11 afterwards. But first, uh, let's open in prayer and commit this time to the Lord. Father, uh, the songs we were singing this morning, um, Lord, I pray that they would be true of our lives. It's not just uh, words we say, but um, the theme of our life. That we would be joined together as a people. And that would be more like you. Pray, Lord, that you would uh, show, the, show us um, through your word how, how we're to do this. And uh, may you speak to us, speak to our hearts, and change us like only you can. Amen. Philippians is an awesome book. I mean, they all are, right? But there's something special about Philippians that is so encouraging. In fact, that was one of Paul's main themes and purposes in writing it. And if you ever feel like you need to be encouraged, uh, take the time to sit down and read the book. Or let the Bible out read it for you. It should only take 30 or so minutes, and it would be so beneficial. Trust me. The church in Philippi had a unity problem. There was conflict and division that Paul knew about, and he wanted to encourage them to live out their lives in service to God and to each other as worthy citizens of a heavenly kingdom. He wrote to them from prison, um, which was most likely in Rome. And it seems kind of backwards that he was writing to them to encourage them, right? Because he's the one in prison. They should be encouraging him. But that shows the kind of heart he had and um, the selflessness towards his fellow believers. He wanted to make sure that they knew that even with the possibility of execution on the horizon, he was still full of joy through his faith in Jesus. And not only that, but that his imprisonment was actually a good thing because it served to advance the gospel even further. Directly for the passage that we're going to be studying today um, is Paul's famous to live as Christ, to die as gain speech. The reason he is able to rejoice in his current situation is that no matter what happens, Christ will be honored if he dies he will at last be able to be with Christ in heaven. 
But if he is allowed to live longer, that means he gets to continue to help his fellow Christians progress in their faith. All of the glory of Christ. So now with that in mind, let us read Philippians 1.27. Oh. There we go. You hear me now? All right, let's try that. Philippians 1, chapter 27 through 30. Only let your manner of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Amen. A phrase that kept rolling around in my mind as I was preparing for this sermon was, it is the gospel that unites us, and it is for the gospel that we have been united. What I mean by this is that um, the only reason that we exist as a church is because of Jesus and what he has done for us. He has brought us together in unity with himself. For the purpose of putting the work of the gospel on full display for the world to see. It's for his glory. My goal is to examine this idea through what Paul has written to the Philippians. And to obtain a tangible working definition of what unity means. The questions I want to answer are, what motivations do we have to be united as a church? What is the purpose or goal of our unity supposed to be? And what does our unity look like in real everyday life? But before we get too far, I wanted to take a second to consider the word unity by itself. When you think of the word unity, what comes to mind? Okay. Okay, stop. <laughs> Too much. <laughs> You're right. It was a rhetorical question. <laughs> well, honestly, by itself, like when I was thinking about it um, to begin with, I struggled to grasp what the idea of unity was supposed to really mean. If, if I was just thinking about the word, what, what it's supposed to mean for us as Christians, the impact it's supposed to have for us. 
The dictionary definition for unity puts it like this. It's the state of being united or joined as a whole. Or in a mathematical sense, unity can mean the number one. So thanks, dictionary. I still didn't find that to be very helpful. (laughs) I think the reason is, in order for unity to have any practical meaning or purpose, to have any life in it, it has to be attached to something else, right? Unity requires there to be something of common interest or importance. Uh, For example, we live in the United States of America. And one of the things that is of central importance to its citizens is democracy. Government for the people and by the people. We have a constitution that was unique in the time of its writing, and our military swears to support and defend it. It's necessary for them to be unified in that because it preserves the democracy and the other rights that we enjoy as a country. At its beginning, when people saw this different form of government, some thought it was crazy and fought against it, but others chose to defend it. It was important to them. And still others desired to immigrate from other countries because of all that it promised to them. What is it that we as Christians stand for? What is it we defend and promote? Why would anyone care to join our cause? The answers are found in our text this morning. So let's take a look at what Paul wrote to a divided Philippian church. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The idea of worthiness here does not mean that we have to live our lives in order to earn the gospel. That's impossible. We could never do that. But rather, we're to live in a way that displays the worth of the gospel to us. We should let our lives show that the good news of Jesus matters enough to us that we live in the way that it prescribes. The Greek in this text can also be translated only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. Which fits nicely with what Paul says later in in his letter about our citizenship being in heaven. Citizenship was a big deal to the Philippians. If you were a Philippian in this time, you also had the same rights and privileges as a Roman citizen did. Everyone wanted those rights and privileges. Paul is saying, yes, you have these privileges, but they shouldn't matter to you as much as your citizenship in heaven does. Let your life be a reflection of this fact. You've heard it said before, I'm sure, that this world is not our home. And this is true. We enjoy many rights and privileges of being citizens of the United States. But our true allegiance is to Jesus and his kingdom. 
Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Paul's desire was for the Philippians to stand firm in one spirit. And in the Greek, the term stand firm is military in nature. It conjures up the image of soldiers standing together in defense of something against an enemy. In this case, they're defending the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ as the one Lord against the onslaught of the Roman government who says Emperor Nero was the one Lord. There was This was probably the reason Paul was in prison to begin with, because of his promotion of this idea, preaching Jesus. And he says that the only way for us to effectively withstand opposition like this, is to stand together in unity, drawing strength from the one spirit that was given to us all. Not only does Paul wish for the Philippians to stand firm against those who would oppose them, but they are to have one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul switches his imagery from militant to athletic. Striving side by side paints the picture of a team of athletes all working together for the same goal. And in this case, the goal is to help each other grow in our faith and to see the faith of the gospel spread to others to make and mature disciples. Does that sound familiar? In our Western culture, the ideas of individualism and independence, the I-can-make-it-on-my-own mentality, are praised and encouraged. But in the kingdom of God, it is just the opposite. Its citizens are made to live as dependent people, dependent on God, first and foremost, first and foremost, but also dependent on each other. Our sanctification, our growth, aren't designed to happen only between us and Jesus as individuals, but in the context of the body of Jesus. We need to be unified in this endeavor. We are to stand firm in the gospel together. We are to strive for the gospel together, all without fear of the opposition. We'll probably never come even close to the kind of persecution that the early church endured or other parts of the world endure today. But that doesn't mean that following Jesus is without a certain amount of suffering. That suffering can take various forms in our lives. But we can take comfort as Paul did. He said, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage 
now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. When the world, and by world I mean your neighbors, your friends, your co-workers, your family, when the world looks on as the church is standing fearlessly united by the gospel of Christ, there are only two reactions that they can have. It is either repulsed or attracted, offended or repentant. They will either oppose you or seek to immigrate into the kingdom of God. We have no control over their response, only God does. But it is our responsibility to be a clear, unified sign to them of the way that leads to destruction and the way that leads to salvation even if doing so could lead to some kind of suffering. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now still have. These verses clearly state that our faith is a gift from God, a direct gift. And it also clearly states that our suffering is too, but suffering for his sake. The Philippians and Paul were each going through the same kinds of struggles for pledging their allegiance to Jesus as Lord instead of Nero, namely imprisonment and death and persecution. But just as Paul said before, in our suffering we can honor Christ. And in that we can be joyful, even if God doesn't take it away. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It isn't God's desire that we suffer because he's a mean God. It's because he is loving. Because he knows that our suffering, for his sake, leads to something that is far, far better. So, we made it through the first part. And in it, we answered the first two questions that I wanted to answer. Um, Paul urges us to live as worthy citizens of a heavenly kingdom, unified by the faith of the gospel. And our motivation for this unity should be to strengthen each other, to stand firm against the outside influences of this world that threaten to shake our faith in the gospel. And our purpose for this unity should be to strive together for growth in our faith and for spreading the gospel. We are to be a sign to a world doomed to destruction and a light pointing to the way of salvation. 
So what unites us? It's the gospel of Jesus. Why have we been united? To defend and spread the gospel of Jesus. And now, what does our unity in the gospel of Jesus look like in real everyday life? Spoiler alert, it looks like Jesus. So let's read about it in our second section of Paul's encouragement to the Philippians. It's in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. We need to remember why Paul was writing to the Philippians about unity. It's because they were struggling with it. There was an internal conflict that was hindering their ability to defend and spread the gospel. Paul heard about it and wanted to see it dissolve, dissolved quickly, and unity was the antidote. He began here by reminding them of some of the gospel facts, some of the things that were indisputably common to all believers in Christ. When he used the word if, of verse 1, chapter 2, it was not to say that there was some chance that these things were not true, but instead he wrote it with the underlying assumption that they were true. A better translation might have been the word since. Since you all have felt encouragement in Christ, were comforted by his love, experienced the Spirit's participation in your sanctification, and have known the affection and sympathy of our God, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and with one mind. Complete my joy. Remember, Paul was in prison when he was writing this, persecuted, execution was looming, 
And he told the Philippians that the only thing lacking in his joy was their unity. That's amazing. That's how important it was to Paul. He told them to be of the same mind. Same mind as what? As each other? Well, yes and no. Yes, so long as they had the same mindset as Jesus. He told them to have the same love. The same love as each other? Yes and no. So long as they had the same love for each other as Jesus had for them. Be in full accord and one mind. Unity. Another word for accord is harmony. And in studying for this sermon, I I heard an illustration that I found helpful in understanding what Paul is about to say next. It goes like this. A conductor was asked which instrument was the hardest instrument to play in an orchestra. The conductor thought for a moment and then answered, Second violin. He said that he could find many people who wanted to play first violin, to play the lead part. But he could find few who wanted to play second violin willingly and with enthusiasm. And the problem is that if they didn't have a second violinist, they wouldn't have harmony. Be in full accord means to harmonize with your fellow believers. It's not about being louder, more important, more prestigious, more noticed. It's about working together to produce something that neither of you could apart. And the only way to do that, Paul says, is through humility. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The Greek words which are translated as selfish ambition or conceit are kinos, which means empty, and doxa, which means glory, empty glory. Do nothing out of empty glory. This is the desire to be first, to be greater, to be more respected, and to have a higher estimation of our own worth than we ought. The early Christians were engrossed in a culture that promoted this kind of competitive attitude and gave preference to those who were of the highest status, which is not quite so different from our culture nowadays. Everything from who your family was, where you grew up, how well-to-do you were, how smart you sounded, played into your status and worth as a person. And the Philippians were not immune to this. Neither are we. And all for what? Empty glory? But Paul advocated for something radically different and countercultural. He said, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. This is a tough one. We all struggle with humility. Every one of us. The temptation is strong to look at other people's faults and not count them as worthy of our time 
of our love, of our ministry. But the truth is, if Jesus did this to us, we would be destined for the same destruction as the rest of the world. But thankfully, that is not the example our Savior gave us. Amen? In God's kingdom, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Who did, say, who did Jesus say would be the greatest in the kingdom? He impressed over and over again, it's the humble, it's the lowly, it's the servant. And what does the servant do? Paul puts it this way. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. What he's not saying here is to neglect ourselves in our own needs, but rather to obey the greatest commandment, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Treat others as you would want to be treated. Don't be selfish. Don't be prideful. And in this, we will guard against inward disunity and live harmoniously for the sake of the gospel. Counting others as more significant and looking to the interests of others is what true citizens of the kingdom, gospel-centered, worthy manner of life kind of unity looks like. It looks like Jesus. And this is the kind of unity that will see people immigrating into the kingdom of God. People don't care about the organizational oneness of the church. That we agree on the color of the carpet. That we arrive at the same place at the same time and do stuff. Or that we have the most flashy, high-tech church service broadcast to millions of people. That doesn't really matter. But you know what is going to leave a lasting impression? When people love each other sacrificially. Because that's different. The people watching the church want to know. Do they care about each other? Is there someone there that could love me? Is there a family that I could be a part of? Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself but by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the example of our Savior. Jesus had everything. He had the fullness of glory by being in the form of God. God was his Father. Heaven was his dwelling place. He had no need or want of anything. He was all-knowing, all-powerful. But he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. His father was a nobody carpenter. His hometown was a Nazareth, 
was Nazareth, where nothing good ever came from. He was born into poverty as a helpless, powerless baby who had to grow and learn just like you and I do. He humbled himself by being obedient to the will of the Father, even if it meant suffering, even if it meant death in the most humiliating way. All for us unworthy sinners. We are called to have the same mind as Christ, the same love. We cannot successfully do any kind of ministry as a church without this principle. It is absolutely critical. Jesus did it, and we must too. But it doesn't stop there. We can't stop, the re- stop reading the Bible after Jesus' death on the cross. That was not the end of his story. And it's not the end of our unity with him. Paul continues to the Philippians. He says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. After Jesus' death, He was raised to life. After his burial, his resurrection. After his humiliation, his supreme exaltation into glory. Just like Paul says in Romans 6, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And again in Romans 8, If children than heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Jesus is our model for unity and for love. In his obedience to the Father, in his sacrifice for the unworthy, and in his selflessness by humbly counting others as more significant than himself. Be that way. So that when the world looks on us, they see Jesus. Be united with Christ. Be united with each other. And for the sake of mutual sanctification, and for the defense, and for the advancement of the gospel. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. This is uh, your will for us, that we be united together. It's Jesus' prayer for us, as he intercedes for us, that we be united with him, with each other, so that the world may see and know 
Jesus. Let us be that way. Let us obey in humility and selflessness. All for your glory, Lord, we pray. Amen. If you would like to participate in the mission of Crossroads Church through financial support, checks can be mailed to Crossroads Church, Post Office Box 576, West Ossipee, New Hampshire, 03890.